It begins, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we humbly just ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit to have an ear to hear and a heart to receive what your Spirit would say to this part of your church assembled here this morning as we open this particular portion of your Holy Scripture. Lord, you know what that means for me and for each and every one standing here in this room this morning. So, Lord, do for us what we cannot even do for ourselves. Prepare us. Make our hearts fertile soil. We believe that you're a God who speaks and that your word and your spirit is how you do that. So we pray, bless your word this morning, and we pray that your spirit be our teacher and the one who instructs us and speaks to us. And we ask expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, we have all at times before suffered from perhaps making some mistake in life or for simply just doing what's wrong. But have you perhaps ever suffered at times for doing the right thing? Find yourself maybe struggling or suffering because maybe you took a stand for the Lord or you decided to follow the Lord in some way. Well, often the first time, I know I remember when I was a brand new Christian, you, you kind of encounter that it almost sort of takes you back a little bit. Uh, it almost causes you to even maybe feel a little bit confused. Yet the reality is every time we endure mistreatment for Jesus or for following Jesus or for standing for Jesus, let's be honest, it is hard to process that. But we also have to keep in mind that the reality is, is enduring such sufferings really is biblically a part of the Christian life. 
It's not our favorite verse, certainly, but Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul promised us in Philippians 1, it's been accounted to you that he is given or granted unto you not only to believe upon Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake that it actually is a part of this badge of honor, this privilege of association with Christ, that at times we will suffer for his sake. Jesus himself said this in John 15. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Again, when we hear the word persecute or persecution, it speaks of verbal, physical, circumstantial mistreatment that a person suffers because of their beliefs or their way of life. Paul even went so far to tell us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, another promise, will suffer persecution. And that's the case here. That reality is being experienced with this young congregation, this newer church of Thessalonica that's being referred to even in this passage in front of us this morning. You notice the references as we read it, as Paul talked about the tribulations and persecutions, verse 4, that they were right now enduring. He talked as well there in verse 5 about how it was for the kingdom of God for which they were suffering. He's describing how those people in that day, Christians in that church, were being troubled by others. So Paul gives here an encouragement and some instruction to help this congregation to process and to work through some of this mistreatment that they were suffering for Jesus' sake. And from it, I think we can glean insight as well for our lives and encouragement as we will experience to some extent the same as well. Again, obvious from the title of this book we now begin this morning, this is the second letter which Paul now writes to the church of Thessalonica. He writes it from Corinth and he writes it probably just a few months or so after he had written the first letter. And again, we remember that this church of, of, of Thessalonica is a church that Paul planted personally, but then he quickly moved on from that church, not because of preference, but because of persecution and being hassled for his, uh, in a sense, stand for Christ, Paul was basically, with the, the church of Thessalonica, he was basically sort of driven out of town, forced to move on. And Paul writes his letters back to this church that he cared deeply about. The first letter we saw that we studied together, the main theme of that first letter, one of the main themes certainly was the return of Jesus. The imminent return of Christ. Paul kept referring to it continuously, giving instruction about it. How as believers, he talked about, we were going to be raptured or caught up off of this earth, snatched away supernaturally to go and meet the Lord in the air and thus we would ever be with the Lord. Paul talked in that first letter as well about how that would then bring about this thing called the day of the Lord, which I'll make reference to in this letter as well. This day of the Lord, this time period that would include a number of things, part of which would be a time called the tribulation on this earth, a seven-year period 
that will come to pass on this planet after Christians are removed by Jesus, whereby there's great suffering and judgments and difficulty coming to pass on this earth. And it appears in connection now to the suffering and the tribulations and hardships that the church of Thessalonica were going through in an intensified way there that some wrong ideas began to develop in the minds of the Christians who were a part of this church in this congregation where they were embracing some wrong perceptions as they were trying to process the sufferings and hardships that they were enduring. And some, it seems very evident, were beginning to wrongly think and even say that this day of the Lord, which would bring suffering and hardship, was actually already happening and they were now enduring the sufferings and punishment of some of that as Christians. In fact, it seems even there was some wrong teaching or some spiritual letters that had circulated that were stirring up this idea that they had now entered into the day of the Lord. In fact, if you just glance over into chapter 2, this is why I say this. Look into chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Paul says, Brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us that the day of Christ had come. Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means. And then Paul talks about, as we'll see, some of the ways they could identify when that day had come and clearly when it had not began yet. So this second letter now, by way of just a backdrop, the main emphasis are going to be things like combating this wrong interpretation of their suffering and correcting misunderstandings about sufferings that Christians were enduring. It's going to also secondly further instruct with more truth and understanding about end time events further instruction about the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus Christ that will give indication and understanding about the Antichrist and some of those things. And thirdly, it will encourage and exhort believers how to live properly in light of the coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming and Paul is going to say, however, that means something by how we should live properly. Not taking a super spiritual mindset and doing things that they shouldn't, as Paul will deal with in the third chapter. But Paul is going to say, in light of Jesus' coming, you should stand faithful under the pressures and persecutions. But you should also, he's going to say, stay productive in everyday life as you await the Lord's return. And that you occupy faithfully and don't just sit around meditating on scripture and waiting for Jesus to come and being lazy. And Paul is going to address that in the third chapter, that we should live in this world, be effective and fruitful and productive as we await for Jesus to come. Now, because we did a thorough introduction in 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to allow you, if you want that or you need that, to refer to that. You can listen to that message and give you some understanding about the area of Thessalonica and the background, the cultural setting. But for sake of time, and since we've covered that once, let's get into our letter. It begins by telling us, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this letter, because it was not written on flat paper like we use today, half by 11 sheets, but typically writings were on scrolls that you would open up 
This was very customary that at the beginning of a letter, it would open with the identification of who it was from rather than at the end of the letter. So it begins right away introducing the writers or who the letter is from. This was customary. And this letter we see again, like the first, was from Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, as we know him more often, and Timothy. Again, this ministry team that Paul operated with as he was going about on his missionary journeys planting churches. Silas was a partner who sort of traveled with Paul as an assistant and, and, and stayed with him and ministered side by side with him, providing support and assistance. Timothy, we know, was that young protege who Paul took sort of under his wing to invest in, to groom as a younger man, to try and duplicate himself in ministry. Next, we see who the letter's addressed to. It says it was to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, we spent time in the first letter discussing the area of Thessalonica, the background, and even how this particular church was planted. Acts 17 records the church being planted there. You can read that if it helps. But note again that Paul, just like in the first letter, indicates not just the physical location of this church. The physical location was the church of the Thessalonians. That, that's where it was physically located in the city of Thessalonica. But more importantly, Paul also, just like in his first letter, he, he lets us see what makes someone a part of the church. Look what he says there. Yes, it's the church of the Thessalonians, but he says it's the church of Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's more important than the physical location because that tells us, in essence, how someone becomes a part of the church. The word church in the Bible means a called out assembly. That's what the term means. Ecclesia, those who are called out of something called into an assembly. And notice, it is the church of those in, the idea is in relationship spiritually with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church is made up of those who were among the city of Thessalonica who were called out of the world, out of an unsaved condition, and into a relationship with God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. And that is what makes someone a part of the church, that they've been called out of the world and into a relationship spiritually with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. By way of application for us this morning, it's important that we know and realize, please hear me this morning, that it is not just about attending church, but it is more about have you ever truly become a part of the church, which is a radically different thing. You can attend the church. You can attend meetings. You can like hanging out with people of the church and you can attend a church. But that is not the same thing biblically and spiritually as being a part of the church. That happens when you enter into a relationship spiritually with God as your Father and Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. That is what makes someone a part of the church. And it are those people, not those attending a church, but those who are a part of the church who will be raptured and removed from this planet when Jesus Christ blows the trumpet. And that's important. And this morning, if you've never made that distinction or perhaps for the first time you realize, I don't know if I'm truly in a relationship with God, then I'm glad you're here this morning because you can settle that before you leave. 
You can settle that God loves you and he's reaching out to you and has you here for that reason. Verse 2, he goes on to say, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a very typical Pauline greeting. Grace, charis, favor to you and peace, shalom uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul marks all of his letters and writings with this typical kind of Pauline greeting. And he now begins verse 3 to get into the body really of his letter. He says, we are bound to thank God always for you because as it is fitting... Because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. So again, Paul, just such wisdom from a leadership perspective, wanting to share with someone who's hurting. He knows these Thessalonian Christians are enduring some really hard times. He knows they're enduring some hardship. So he opens his communication with just giving some encouraging words just to try and lift their soul, to try and help them have some comfort and encouragement in the midst of their hardship. He indicates that as a church and a group of believers, they gave him great joy and reason, he's going to say in verse 4, to boast, to brag to other churches about how wonderful they were doing as they were upholding their faith in the midst of hardships. He says there, verse 3, look at it, he says, we're bound, the idea is we feel like we're obligated to God. We feel like we must, he says, give thanks to God for you. That's another way of telling somebody, we're so proud of you. Well, you, know, you when we think about you, it just, it just brings such joy and pleasure to our hearts. And Paul tells them here in verse 3 some reasons he was so thankful to God for them. The first one we see, if you want to take note of, he says, we're really thankful for this reason because of your, he says, your spiritual progress. We're thankful to God because we see as we look at your church and you as a group of Christians that you're making progress spiritually. You see what he says there, verse 3? Because your faith grows, and then he adds the word exceedingly, which means a lot, that they were growing a lot. These believers within the fellowship were not backsliding, praise the Lord, nor were they getting entangled in the world, and they weren't even remaining just static. And going nowhere, kind of the spiritually pious attitude of, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a strong Christian and, and I'm kind of, this is good enough. And, and just kind of settling in and plateauing spiritually, relying on their prior spiritual experiences, their growth thus far and thinking, you know, I think I've arrived. I'm kind of, I'm kind of content with this. I'm, compared to a lot of Christians, I'm a pretty strong Christian. That they weren't even settling for the status quo. Instead, they were growing, Paul says. They were developing. They were making progress continually, going deeper than they were already in the things of God, going further, moving forward in the things of the spiritual life. They were growing, no doubt, in their personal faith as followers of Jesus, which implies maturity. They were maturing. They were growing. They were growing exceedingly as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. They were arriving to new levels of maturity, continually increasing and going further. And no doubt as well, they were growing probably just in the area of faith. That is, they were learning how to trust the Lord in greater ways. And you know, that's something that really, quite honestly, is a really wonderful thing as a Christian, that you come to Jesus Christ, you put faith in him for salvation, but then the Lord wants us to continue to learn as we walk with Jesus how to trust the Lord in greater ways. It's okay, you trusted me for your salvation now. 
But can you trust me to fulfill this promise and to work in your life in that way and that we would continue as we get to know him better to grow in greater ways? So they were a church that was making spiritual progress as a group of Christians. And I have to ask this morning, what about our church? Are we marked by that? Are we as a local congregation, if Paul were to give an evaluation of us or Jesus were to look at us, would Jesus say, yeah, boy, that is a church that's making spiritual progress? I don't care if they're making financial progress or numerical progress, but, but the Jesus said, but they're making spiritual progress. They're growing exceedingly in their faith. What about you as a believer this morning? Is your faith growing? Are you maturing as a Christian or just plateauing or are you regressing? Are you growing as an individual Christian and are you learning how to trust the Lord more? Maybe you've trusted him, but are you learning how to trust him in greater ways maybe than you never had before? That's a good thing if you're doing that, making progress. Spiritual growth is God's intention both for us personally as Christians and congregationally. Peter would say to us in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's God's will, that we would continuously make progress and grow. Secondly, Paul says another reason he was thankful for them we see in verse 3, is because of their increasing and overflowing expression of love towards each other. You see what he says, verse 3 there? He says, we also thank God because of the love of every one of you all abounds, overflows toward each other. It seems an evident mark of this church family, again, is that they were incredibly loving in the way they related and interacted with each other. This was just, Paul would say, you guys are such a loving church. The bonds you share with each other, the relationships, not only were they a spiritually hungry people, but they were a very loving church. And let me just say, those two really do line up with each other. When someone is growing spiritually, they also will be increasing in love continually because the Bible I read says the fruit of the Spirit is... Thankfully, one person knows it. One person's growing in the church. Let's try that again. The fruit of the Spirit is... Okay, just checking. <laughs> love. So they're becoming more loving because they're growing. What God is love. So as you get to know God, more love becomes precedent in your heart as you're walking in the Spirit. Love becomes the ultimate thing. Again, we may not all be capable to serve in the same capacities, but we can all show love. We may not all be able to teach the word of God or to you know, maybe be effective in children's ministry or, or to, to serve in some other capacity, but we can all show love. We can all show love. And 1 Corinthians 13 says that more than any other gifting or form of service, it's love that matters. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I've become a resounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and knowledge, the most discerning person in the church, though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, you're the most generous, giving, benevolent person. Do more for those in need than anybody else, he says, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Again, the Bible upholds this reality that love is the most important thing. And the absence of love honestly indicates an absence of God's Spirit in our lives. 
It can indicate the absence of God's Spirit at work in a church because God is love, and the presence of love and its practice indicates the presence of the Lord is at work in our lives. The presence of the Lord is at work by His Spirit among a group of people. Though they were enduring the fires of hardship and mistreatment and suffering, the result we see there in verse 3 is that they were still growing spiritually. Their faith was increasing. There was a deepening and increasing of their love amongst one another. And isn't it true that hard times can tend to produce those beneficial byproducts in our lives? Maybe, maybe, I don't know, and I'm not a prophet, maybe you've prayed something in your life like, Lord, help me to grow and help me to be more loving, Lord. Well, perhaps the reason for all the hardship, pressure, and chaos in your life is God's answering your prayer. Maybe God's saying, well, you want to exercise towards godliness? We got to put 10 more pounds on the bench press today. <laughs> oh, Lord. But see, God understands what things have a good effect. And maybe, perhaps, God, part of answering your prayer, helping answer your prayer to grow and be more loving, is letting some of the hardships come, allowing some of the mistreatment or struggles or challenges, because those can be great things at times to help us to grow, to mature, and to become more a compassionate and loving person. So Paul commends them not only for that spiritual growth and love, but also verse 4 tells them how proud he was of them for the great example they were to other churches. He says, so that we ourselves, verse 4, boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So notice verse 4 there, Paul clearly indicates, as we said at the beginning, that they were, he says, verse 4, enduring both persecutions and tribulations. We Again, we said persecution, is verbal, physical, circumstantial mistreatment because of your belief in Jesus or living for Jesus as his follower. It can involve things like harassment and rejection and, and mistreatment and attack and abuse verbally, physically, and persecutions intended to intimidate and to hurt and to afflict and to try and bully someone away from what they believe or what they live for to make you suffer for what you stand for or believe. That's what they were enduring, and I venture to guess if I asked, that is at times what some of you are enduring in your Christian life as well. He also mentions not only persecutions, but tribulations. That term Paul uses there in verse 4 is the term that refers to crushing pressure that was used to separate in the threshing process to separate the wheat from the chaff. They would drag a, a, a heavy sled that they would use implements that put crushing pressure down to, to do a separation process. And it speaks of how they were enduring crushing pressures and hardships in their life that were basically driving them to a place where they felt like they were being pulled apart at the seams. And at times you and I experience that. Not only persecutions, but tribulations. Maybe you've been under some tribulation in your life recently. Painful things have been happening to you that are trying to pull you apart at the seams. And it feels like that it's just tearing you apart. Well, the thing Paul was so impressed with, notice verse 4, was how well they were handling this. The persecutions and the tribulations. Paul says in verse 4, yes, you're enduring these things, but he says, but yet you're exercising faith and patience in all those persecutions and amidst 
you're enduring all those tribulations. They were continuing to walk through it in faith, trusting the Lord. Like you and I, they were going through hard times despite the difficulties and the unanswered questions. Why are we being treated like this? Or why have we gone through these hardships? Or why are we experiencing these crushing pressures and tribulations? They kept believing anyway. They didn't say, well, if it's going to be like this, I'm taking my marbles and I'm going back to serve the devil. And sometimes when we go through hardships, that's the thought the devil wants to plant in our mind. Remember Jesus with his disciples on one occasion started to say some difficult things in John chapter 6 and it says from that point on many of Jesus' disciples departed and followed him no longer. When it got hard, some departed. And then Jesus turned to his band of men who were with him and he says, "Uh, do you want to leave too? Jesus wasn't saying, come on, please stay. Please don't abase it. You have free will. Do you want to leave too? And wisely, the response came back, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? And they just kept believing, even though when they didn't have the answers, even when they didn't see. And it says as well here, verse 4, Paul says they were exercising patience. Your translation may say perseverance. It's a term there in the Greek that speaks of bearing up under something, under pressure without giving up, without giving in. Yes, the pressure's there, but bearing up under it in endurance and perseverance without giving up and giving in. And because of how well they were handling this, Paul wanted them to know here in verse 4 that their faithful endurance and godly response in the hardship during the suffering not only pleased the Lord, absolutely, but even more than that, Paul said, you have no idea what a great platform this is for me to be able to encourage other Christians and other churches with how well you're handling this because I can point to your example. Paul says, verse 4, we boast of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the hardships. Paul's saying to them, look, I'm able to encourage so many other Christians and so many other churches by pointing to your example and helping them to see that it is possible to persevere and endure. See, the handling of our hardships and suffering, yes, it has a helpful effect upon us, but you have no idea, Christian, how much you may be helping someone else. You have no idea how when you stand strong and don't cave, how that at times may courage and comfort somebody else who's suffering. That someone watches you or someone's able to say as they're talking to you, look, let me share with you what's going on in this brother's life and how he's keeping faith in Jesus And how he's standing strong in Jesus and he's persevering. And sometimes, boy, it can even uh, convict the complacent heart to kind of wake up. Here somebody else is goofing off and messing around. And, and, And sometimes to hear the testimony how someone else is standing strong in the midst of a hard time. It has a powerful effect at times to challenge, even at times, when maybe we can be a little overly sensitive of our own hardships. And sometimes we maybe exaggerate and get overly sensitive to sometimes hear what somebody else is going through and to see how they're standing strong in Jesus and trusting the Lord. Sometimes when we get a little oversensitive, it's just a little subtle nudge of the Lord to say, look, life's not that unbearable. Do you see what they're going through? Do you see what that family's experiencing? Do you see what that church is experiencing? 
And somehow it can have a very helpful way to encourage by way of example. So in the midst of hardship, it can be a very beautiful thing to stand faithful to Jesus because it can be used to encourage others around us. Paul now speaking of the persecutions and tribulations they're enduring goes on verse 5 to say which those things are manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest, he says, with us. So notice verse 5, Paul indicates it was, again, directly for the kingdom of God for which they suffered. Paul makes that connection. Their love for Jesus and faithfulness to his throne and his kingdom is what brought the suffering on them that they were enduring. Again, Jesus in Matthew 5 spoke about how blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad that this is a badge of honor. And those unpleasant experiences, as unpleasant as they were, still revealed certain things because that's what Paul's talking about in our verses here. First of all, it revealed and indicated that these Christians were genuine, sincere followers of Jesus Christ who proved themselves worthy of the kingdom, Paul says, for which they were willing to suffer and remain loyal to Jesus. And the truth of the matter is this. If a person is not genuinely committed to Christ then they're going to forsake Christ when the fires come. When it soon begins to get hard and a little bit difficult or some resistance comes for being faithful to Jesus, they're going to forsake the Lord and not stand firm. On the other side of that, remaining loyal as these Christians were, despite their suffering for their association with Jesus, was a revelation that they were worthy, dedicated followers of Christ that were willing to suffer and still follow him irregardless. It also, Paul says in verse 5 and 6 here, is an opportunity as they experience persecution to provide sort of a stage or a platform to reveal, secondly, the righteous judgment of God, that God indeed is a righteous judge. And he speaks in verse 5 there of the righteous judgment of God, that God is righteous. And Paul says, because he is righteous, God is going to use even the sufferings and persecutions that you're dealing with as his followers, he's telling the Thessalonians, to be an opportunity, strange as it sounds, to indicate that he is a righteous judge. It sort of sets the stage, Paul is saying, for God to reveal and show how just of a judge he really is, that he's righteous in his dealings with all of humanity both with the saved who follow him as well as those who reject God and do evil. Because Paul is going to say here, verse 6 and 7, God will up, uphold and hold accountable and ultimately punish faithfully those who do wrong and harm God's people. And at the same time, he will also step in and intervene to rescue the godly who are being mistreated. So let's look at that first thing, verse 6 there, how God as a righteous judge will hold accountable and punish those who do wrong and harm others. He speaks in verse 6 saying, It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation, same term, trouble, those who trouble you. So what Paul's saying is, notice, it's a completely righteous thing for God. For God. 
because he's a righteous judge, it is a righteous thing for God to be able to repay those who are troubling his followers and harming his children with the punishment they deserve. What they've sowed in making God's people suffer, persecuting Christians, doing things to make their lives miserable, resisting them, making it harder for them on this planet because they're followers of Christ, the Bible says God will allow them to ultimately reap in kind what they have sowed. Because God is a righteous judge, he will repay them with tribulation in return for the trouble that they've rendered. Which means this morning, in any way someone has ever troubled you for your faith, God ultimately keeps account of that. In any way someone has allowed you or forced you to deal with hardship and suffering, the Bible's saying God will repay. God will repay them. He will allow them to reap in kind trouble in the same way they've troubled you. And here's the key. When God does it, verse 6 is saying, when God does it, it's a righteous thing. Because he does it in the right way, at the right time, to the right measure and extent. And, and, and that is why it's important for us not to retaliate and to try and repay or to try and forcefully strong arm and fight back when we're persecuted as Christians or persecuted as the church or followers of Christ. It is actually better for us to retreat and pray and let God handle the matter. Because the reality is this, if we do it, it's often unrighteous. We address it in a way that starts to get fleshly and carnal and unrighteous. But if we let God do it, because God said he'll handle it because he's a righteous judge, then God will do it and it will be a righteous thing and ain't nobody going to argue about it. Because it'll be a righteous thing when God does it. And God will do it in a righteous way in a right manner. And secondly, we see here that this persecution and suffering of Christians also is something Paul says that we need to remember because God's a righteous judge that he's going to step in and intervene to rescue or relieve the godly who are suffering. See what Paul says, verse 7 there? He says, and he not only will repay those who are troubling you, but he also, Christian, will give you who are troubled rest. Now that's such an encouraging thing there. Suffering and mistreatment of believers is not going to last forever. It's not something without end. The resistance, the hardship, the verbal attacks from your family, the mockery of your friends, an anti-Christian government and the things that they do to followers of Christ. The reason that we're dealing with that has purpose, but the Bible is saying the Lord is going to relieve us in a set time. That it's not indefinite, that he will not allow it to continue forever. There's coming a time when he will step in and remove us out from under that trouble and give us rest. Give us the relief that we're longing for personally or collectively as God's people. Perhaps this morning in your own life, you've really been being troubled by something, by someone, primarily because you're following Christ and your commitment to Jesus to stand for him in your job place or in your family or just in this society to try and be a follower of Jesus. And people are doing things to make you suffer for that and making your life more difficult making your life more difficult just because you love Jesus, just because you want to live for Jesus, maybe even taking advantage of you unfairly because of your commitment and your choice to follow Jesus. Look, be encouraged. God's a righteous judge. And the Bible's saying here that he will give you rest soon. He will give you relief. That rest may not come outwardly right away, but the rest inwardly is always available because what did Jesus say in Matthew 11? He said, come to me, all you who are weary 
and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Rest for your soul. So he gives you rest for your soul now, and one day he'll give you relief and rest as well. Now, if you're like me, you say, well, wait a minute. Well, when can we be sure that God as a righteous judge is going to get busy repaying (laughs) the people who need to be repaid and that he's going to give us complete and literal relief from our troubles? Well, I'm glad you asked that because verse 7 goes on to answer it. It says, look, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire taking vengeance on those who don't know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in the saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. This is no doubt referring to what we call the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes back in his glory. Certainly verse 7 and 8, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire to take vengeance on those who don't know God. Listen to Revelation 19. It describes the same. It says, Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ. At the end of the tribulation, when he returns back to this earth to set up his kingdom, notice in that hour when he returns, departing from heaven... Verse 7 says, revealing himself once again to humanity, Jesus does not come as a meek, humble servant at that time as he did the first time. On this occasion, when Jesus returns, it with all his power and all of his glory and all of his authority as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is one bad hombre. And that's an understatement. And he comes back then with all of his glory as king of kings to judge and make war against ungodliness with all the armies of heaven, you and I joining him in our glorified bodies and all of the angelic host coming with him, behind him, coming, it says, in flame of fire. The idea is awesome glory, righteous wrath. And the reason he comes, it says here in our text, is to take vengeance, verse 8, on those who rejected God and resisted his people. There's a difference between vengeance and revenge. Revenge is getting even and pacifying somebody because you've got a personal grudge. Vengeance is executing justice to satisfy justly a wrong that merits punishment. And God is going to bring vengeance. I say that for this reason. Don't get this idea in your mind that Jesus is coming back with this horrible grudge and bad attitude and hatred towards all these ungodly people on this planet and he's going to take revenge. No, he's going to execute vengeance. The holy, righteous character of a just God must bring about vengeance on wicked, rejecting, sinful, rebellious humanity who have rejected God's greatest offer of love in his son Jesus Christ. Notice who the vengeance is going to come upon the unbeliever and the unsaved soul. That's what's being described there for us in verse 8, the unconverted, the unsaved soul. He refers to them as those who, first of all, don't know God. 
Again, please take note. It does not say the unbeliever does not know about God. I know some non-Christian people who probably know the Bible better than I do. They can tell you a lot about God. They went to school that told them all about God. Maybe they even are familiar with the Bible. They can tell you a lot about God, but they don't know God. They know about God, but they don't know God personally. In a relational way, that doesn't happen until you have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus himself indicated that entering heaven and avoiding hell is about knowing him. Knowing his Father, Jesus said, John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Jesus also said, there are going to be people in that day when they stand before God, they're going to say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, but I never knew you. Depart from me into outer darkness. So again, so important, a person to escape divine judgment must come to know God in a personal way. They have to know God. They have to know Jesus Christ in a personal way as their Savior. And he also describes the unconverted person as those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? We often think of the gospel as a believing thing. And indeed it is. We believe the gospel. But here the Bible says, in more than one occasion in the New Testament, those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the reality is this, saving faith is more than just mental assent to facts and information. Jesus Christ, and notice it's his gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells people, you need to repent of your sin. You need to acknowledge that you are a sinner. You need to confess that I am the only way that you can get to heaven and that I alone have to save you. You can't buy your way in. You can't make yourself right. And you need to follow me. And see, that demands a response that you're either going to obey with sincere saving faith and follow Jesus or you're going to disobey. And the Bible here speaks of those who don't obey the gospel demands. They refuse to obey Jesus' lordship over their life and one day, therefore, in the future, they are going to have to face Jesus as their severe judge. Notice what he says, verse 9. The language is rather direct. He says, these, the unconverted, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Again, notice the severity of the language there. Unceasing punishment awaits the unsaved soul. The consequence for rejecting God and his son Jesus Christ, the Bible says, being punished with everlasting destruction. A perpetual destruction of harm and hurt that never ceases. Again, hell and its suffering is not temporary. It doesn't happen for a time and then you just sort of fizzle out and it's gone. The Bible says that it is everlasting destruction in a place of outer darkness where a person is punished continuously, notice, from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. I think that's saying this to us, that one of the greatest forms of punishment for the unsaved soul that has gone to hell into a place of outer darkness is that they will be forced to forever spend their life for all of eternity, separated for eternity from the presence of Jesus and from all of his glory. Because here's what's going to happen. The unsaved soul is going to stand before Christ when they die. And they are going to bow the knee to Jesus and confess that he is the Lord. And their confession will be a confession to their own condemnation because they will realize they were utterly wrong. 
And as they realize they are utterly wrong, this overwhelming fear of regret will overtake their soul as they realize their grievous eternal error in life and they will live the rest of eternity tormented with that overwhelming regret forever and ever and ever and ever feeling that constant eternal regret and remorse that they cannot change in a place where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. And I think the greatest torment. Oh my gosh. What did I do? I rejected Christ. And the Bible is driving this home to say this is what awaits the unsaved soul. Now notice for the believer, the Christian, it's the exact opposite. He says that when Jesus comes, verse 10, in that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all who believe. So for us, the revelation of Jesus from heaven as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, marks the dawning of a brand new day. It marks the beginning of something wonderful for us where finally Jesus sets up his kingdom, rules in righteousness, and then at the second coming, a day, a time period begins, he says, when Jesus will be glorified in his saints, as we're with him as his precious, righteous bride, he'll be glorified in our redeemed lives as we reflect his glory. And I love this, what it says too, and he will also in that day being admired among all his saints. It will be a time where Jesus is on the earth and finally everything is like we want it to be. With Jesus ruling and reigning in righteousness and no more are people mocking Jesus. No more are people rejecting Jesus. Now everybody's admiring Jesus, continuously being astonished with how wonderful he is. Paul says, verse 11, Therefore we also pray in light of these things that our God would call, grant you worthy of his calling, fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness and work of faith with power. Here's the key, verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul indicates his assurance of these coming realities prompts him to pray that the current lives of God's people would reflect everything they're going to culminate in one day when Jesus returns. He says that God would count you worthy of this calling. The idea there is Paul saying that God would work in you in a way that equals or results in a life lived that measures up to the ultimate destiny of what's going to come to pass in the high calling of Christ and that God would be working in you his good pleasure. Your works of faith would be encompassed with his power enabling you. But here's the key of all, I believe, verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. What was the main concern of Paul's heart for these suffering Christians who are being persecuted and and put through the mill because of their faith and commitment to Christ and their stand for righteousness. What's the main concern of Paul's heart? He wanted their lives to do what? Bring glory to Jesus. He says that Jesus may be glorified in you. Look, in our struggles as we endure things in this fallen world because of our commitment to Christ, and we're going to endure things, and I don't think it's going to get much better. What really, if we boil it down, ladies and gentlemen, is the most important thing? That Jesus is glorified. That Jesus is honored and glorified because ultimately that's our eternal destiny. To admire him and to glorify him. That he'll be admired and glorified. That the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in us. This morning, 
if you're following Jesus and you're suffering, let me say a few things to you. First of all, let me say this. You stay at it. You hang in there. You stay faithful to Jesus. It's worthy. You follow the Lord. You stand strong for Jesus, no matter how hard it is. And secondly, let me say this. Relief's coming. It's coming. Relief and being released from the hardship is coming. And above all else, encourage your heart with this. Whatever you can do to bring glory to Jesus in the midst of it is a badge of honor. Amen? Let's stand together.